Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Following weeks of a relentless bombing campaign coupled with the shutting off of food, water, and fuel, the death toll in Gaza has climbed above 7,000. More than a million people have been displaced internally, significantly more than half the population. Among the areas of Gaza that has been targeted is the city of Han Yunus in the south, home to more than 100,000 residents. Airstrikes are everywhere, and as we speak, there is heavy artillery uh, shelling going on in the eastern part of the city of Khan Yunis, and they're bombing more homes and destroying more infrastructure. Uh, there are uh, uh, airstrikes carried out by sophisticated attack jets, uh, destroying every bit uh, and every sign of life in the Gaza Strip. It's the aftermath of an Israeli airstrike that hit a complex of residential buildings in Han Yunus in the early hours of the morning. The Israeli army says it's targeting Hamas operatives, not civilians. The south is supposed to be the safe side of Gaza. Hundreds of thousands have left the north heeding Israeli warnings. Ryan Grimm. This is Deconstructed. And today, we're going to be joined again by Maram Aldada, an aviation engineer from Orlando who you may remember from a February episode. I interviewed him then about organizing he had done with the Florida-Palestine Network during the last Gaza War in 2021, where he joined Maxwell Frost at a rally, and he later lobbied him to stand firm on Palestinian human rights. That rally was before Frost ran for Congress, and the episode took a look at the way AIPAC and the group Democratic Majority for Israel pressured Frost and others to back off their criticism of the Israeli government. That reporting informed a long intercept investigation and also informed my new book, The Squad, AOC and the Hope of a Political Revolution, which focuses heavily on the fight between the progressive wing of the Democratic Party and AIPAC's leading allies in Congress. I didn't set out to write the book on that conflict, but it has dominated so much of their time in office that's just where the story took it. This week, That fight has ratcheted up to unprecedented levels of animosity when nine Democrats voted against a resolution that condemned Hamas and defended Israel's response but said nothing about Palestinian civilian lives lost. Democratic Representative Josh Gottheimer, the squad's chief antagonist in the House, called them despicable in response. But leaving Palestinian lives out of a resolution or suggesting, as President Biden did this week, that the numbers from Gaza can't be trusted because Hamas runs the health ministry doesn't change what's happening on the ground. I reached back out to Maram, knowing that he was from Gaza, and asked how or whether his family was holding up. His response was a gut punch, and I later told him that if he was up for it, I'd be honored to have him come on the podcast and tell his and his family's story. After giving it some thought, he offered to do it, difficult as it no doubt will be. Maram, welcome to Deconstructed. Thank you so much, Roy. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Of course, of course. And I know this is a really hard time for you and your family. I want to begin by expressing all of our condolences and thank you for be, being willing uh, to talk to me today. And I kind—I wanted to start by getting some background on your family, you know, how they ended up in Gaza in the first place. Thank you so much. So my family originally is from the area adjacent to the Gaza Strip and uh, 1948, when the 1948 war started, the Israelis pushed all the Palestinians into the Gaza Strip and Palestinians in the south into the Gaza Strip. I, my family, was one of these people, one of these families that were pushed. And every night, my grandfather, my 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 dad would tell me that he would go with my grandmother to go and look at their uh, land. The, basically take over their crops and water it and all of that. And he said, like, at night when we tried to go, the Israeli soldiers would start shooting at us. 
and uh, I actually was watching a documentary for Alan Papa. He was he was saying, oh, he, he found a document on the Israeli archive, and that's basically the process they explained. They knew that these villagers will come out of the Gaza Strip trying to take care of their land, and they would just wait for them to shoot them. It just when he tried to explain that uh, that uh, plan or that how they were looking at it, and just uh, hearing it from my dad, knowing my dad and my grandmother were part of that, it was just uh, interesting. And they and they were doing this because they believed that any day they were coming back to that land. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, and uh, I do believe until now. I mean, if we do believe one day, just justice will prevail. Uh, just. Uh, I think I was reading the other day a quote for Martin Luther King, and he said, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. So it's actually, it's it's something we believe in. We believe in justice. We believe things will, will be, that just the history will correct itself. So when did you leave uh, Gaza? So, okay, I wasn't, I was born and raised in Saudi Arabia, but so we spent half of the year in Gaza Strip and half the year in, in Saudi Arabia. So six months in, in Saudi Arabia, when my dad finishes, we go and transfer to, to Gaza. And the last time I went to Gaza was in 2003. Uh, I tried to go again multiple times, but you know, the blockade started and it was almost an impossible mission. So what was it like going in and out of Gaza? And, and how many people in Gaza were able to leave and come back? Because you, know, there's, there's, you, you have an advantage sometimes of understanding a community better sometimes if you if you have other communities that you're also a part of because then you have things to compare and contrast whereas people who just are raised in one area and never leave it that's just what life is i'll tell you a little story so going traveling as a palestinian traveling to us is a very exhausting operation so we would travel from it was in Jeddah, from Jeddah to Amman, Jordan. And then from Amman, Jordan, we drive to the Jordan River crossing. And most likely, you'd spend the night there. The, they, you stay there. And then you have to cross. You take another car. It's it's like getting into that crossing. It's not like a regular crossing, regular borders. You just go with your car. No, 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 no. There's multiple buses you have to transfer between them. And that's how the system works. And then you transfer, you take your luggage, and then go into a, take another car, and you drive. Uh, and you don't drive. So for Gazans, you don't basically have the freedom to move. They call it terhil, and, uh, which mean, basically means forced uh, uh, deportation to the Gaza Strip. So you get, you get in a car, usually with someone with an Israeli citizenship that takes you to, or someone, there's some sort of security coordination. But we know that we're not allowed to get out of the car. And we go directly to the Ares crossings. Ares crossings comes right on the borders of Gaza. And uh, a lot of things happen there too, I remember. It's, that's a military post. That's literally a military post. I remember when my sister, Ra'a, she was almost a year old. No, not even a year, months old. We were traveling and... It was her the first time we go to Gaza after she was born, and my mom had a can of powder uh, milk for her, and they thought it was a bomb, even though we went through the Jordanian crossings, the Jordanian airports, and all that. But for some reason, they thought it was a bomb. They put us in a room. I was with my mom and my dad, my three siblings, and myself. And they put us in a room. It was like a silver room, all silver. And there was like a table in the middle. And then they left and they asked my mom to open the can of milk, that, that powder milk can. I understand what that meant back then, but I understand it now. And it's really not good. I remember like being, we're not allowed to go if we go in. It's just the demeanor, how they treat you. Uh, just seeing your mom and your dad are just don't move that way. You're, they're scared of that individual who's running, searching you. You're not treated normally. Like it's not like going through the TSA and getting your security checks. No, no, no. It's you're treated just. 
It's humiliation. You're humiliated. It's just horrible. And as soon as we go into Gaza, you, you like 20 minutes, you're home. So that, that process to us was almost, it takes almost like a two days, a day and a half. So I remember the first time I traveled to other destination other than Gaza. I was 17 years old. I was going to Jordan. And I remember when I got to, just got out of the airport and in the car and I was just going. My brother was with me. He was two years older than me. I was looking at him. I was like, that's it? And I was like, <laughs> we just get in a car and go. I swear to God, I was shocked. That's it? I didn't know travel was that easy. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it was, uh, it was honestly, it's very sad because uh, I know a lot of people still go through that. And uh, family members of mine who are in their 50s, they've never experienced anything other than what I've experienced in the first 17 years. And so the time that you were there was still the you know direct and explicit occupation uh, because it was what 2006 so i was i was there in the first intifada the second intifada i, I was through curfews multiple curfews and um, i even like the, i remember like when the um, military uh, jeeps would pass through the village everybody like would go we call it zgag between like two buildings and they would go and hide between buildings i've done that too so yeah i've, I've witnessed the whole thing what were the intifadas like as a child? How would it be explained to you, kind of by your parents, of what's what's happening? And also, just on the micro level of how you're supposed to stay safe as a child, like what what kind of directions would parents give to say, this is you know this is how we make sure you come home every night? When this whole thing started, just past two weeks, uh, my brother, my younger brother, and I were talking about what happened in the first intifada. There's like that incident that happened, and. He remembers it, and we remember it like vividly. Like we were kids; I was probably like six years old. He was five, and he was telling me like I remember that day very well. I was eating mangoes, and when they broke in, so the story I remember: we were so they would pass through the village, and they would start arresting anybody who's any male who's more than eighteen years old, like older males or men mm-hmm. and the word spreads in the village in our town very fast like people know they spread it it's it's, it's I, we call it facebook <laughs> we have our own <laughs> facebook uh-huh. it's just like people start screaming they tell each other so my dad my uncles they both got out of the car uh, out of the house and they went to abasan which is like an eastern village but they just started running and we stayed. We were just in the house, and my mom, my uncle's uh, wife, and my other uncle's wife, and my grandmother, and the kids, my siblings, and I. Um, like a few hours later, we just hear in the jeeps. Oh, basically, it's a. Uh, they scream and uh, basically don't get out of the house. That's what they say, and they start just breaking into houses and arresting people. And I remember. Uh, I was in the kitchen and my brother Muhammad was eating. He was saying like he was eating mangoes, watching the door. Like, was not watching the door, just in front of the of the door. And they broke in. And uh, he was telling me like, he used the the phrase he said. It's basically he's like I peed myself. <laughs> and I'm sure. I remember when my grandmother went to the house, running uh, to the door, running, trying just to. I think it was her instinct trying to push them out I saw that and that is I remember that like it was this morning with his uh, rifle he just punched her in the face and she just fell down and just touched, start searching the house there was like a bunch of soldiers and we were just hiding behind my mom and that lasted for maybe like five minutes something like this and then they just they broke everything in the house and they just left so that's i remember the first interval that's how it was yeah and you you cheat like oh i've seen so many a lot of people where they get killed in the streets and there was back then there was media wasn't covering that stuff as now you didn't see it so i've seen people get killed in the streets multiple times multiple times what would you do would you try to uh, help uh 
drag them somewhere or just or would you take off so that you didn't get killed too like how do you respond when we we were we were young it's it's so usually you just we follow the crowd like when when if they stayed there usually people start throwing rocks and they hide uh or you would just run away it depends if they start shooting or doing whatever you just run so and remember, like this, I was, I was, a, I was a child, and every time we go out, my mom was very protective and tried to keep us in. Don't go, uh, Maram. This is not a joke. To tell us the three of us, Malaka, Muhammad, and I, don't leave. It's very dangerous. Uh, so she would always try to control us and keep us in the house. But so we were kids. We do what we have. <laughs> what other kids would do? Yeah. Right. So how how did you? Uh, get out of Gaza in the end? So I went in 2005. Uh, I went to Jordan to do my uh, my undergrad. Uh, and I finished my undergraduate degree. And at, by that time, the whole blockade started. The election happened. Hamas won the elections. And uh, Israel withdrew from Gaza and blockaded Gaza. No one was able to go in and out. And since then, I wasn't able to go back. It became like an impossible mission to go to Gaza. Were you able to vote in that election? And were you surprised that Hamas won? What was? How did that all unfold as you remember it? No, I actually didn't vote. I was in Jordan. Uh, was I surprised? So back then, Hamas, I mean, okay. Palestinians, we all are labeled terrorists. Like to, I mean, Fatah, the PLO, until now is actually designated a terrorist organization by the United States government. So, to the to the for for, for from a U.S. government perspective, the whole system, we're all terrorists. Like all like the here. candidates, all the parties. Oh, everybody is, is designated as terrorists. And Hamas is uh, back then. There was like a massive killing spree of all the leaders, Palestinian leaders, and basically the Israeli government killed all of them. And it was this assassination program that they Yeah, and that out. happened during the, that period. And it was back then, by the way, Hamas, they've done a few, uh, they were like, they were in a way getting militarized, but not, not even close to what it is today. So, it wasn't surprising. It was, in a way, I, I I honestly would say I, we all expected Fatah to win because I mean Yasser Arafat, Abu Ammar, he was the leader of the Palestinian for so many years, and Fatah has always represented the Palestinians. So it was a little surprising, but uh, Hamas is just to, to the Palestinians like another faction, another party. Right. You were telling me that uh, before we started that you tried to visit again just very recently. Tell us about that a little bit. What inspired you to try to make the the trip? I mean, I've always wanted to go to Jerusalem. I mean, when I was a child, remember, like I was telling you at the beginning, I would go across from the Jordan River to Gaza. We would see Jerusalem. We would see the, and we weren't we weren't allowed to to leave. So it's something we've always wanted to go and see Jerusalem and see where my grandfather's is from. Uh, my grandfather told me where he used to go and work and uh, Yaffa when he was a child and tell me all these stories. So I wanted just to go and see. It. And at the same time, uh, I wanted to go to see my grandmother in Gaza. So uh, about two months ago or earlier this year, they started talking about the whole visa waiver program and Israel would be accepted in the visa waiver program and in return, all American citizens of uh, Palestinian origins would be treated like normal American citizens. Or actually, they said to all Americans of uh, of all uh, Muslims and Arabs uh, origins would be able to go to cross any borders without problems in, in the occupied territories. So I said, you know, it's an opportunity. I'll just go see Jerusalem, visit where my grandfather used to work, and then just go and see my grandmother and, and leave. So I got on a plane, crossed the pond, went to Jordan, got on a car, I went to the Jordan uh, the crossing. And I was there for four hours, uh, waiting, 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 waiting. And then they just put me in. I was like, oh, you're, uh, you have Palestinian citizenship. I said, yeah, I am Palestinian. And he goes, uh, well, you can't come from here. Uh, I said, why? There's the whole visa waiver program. I tried to explain it and it was back and forth. And I was like, go back. 
So nice. I remember like when I went back, uh, uh, I was, it was very sad to me. Uh, it was very emotional. I turned back and to look back and I see literally my hometown, my, my country and those crying and uh, I just left went to Amman. And... You could see your hometown from there? Not not hometown, like homeland. Homeland. I mean, like Palestine. I, say, yeah. I see you can see Palestine. I can see the mountains. Right. I can see. It was so close. It's right there. So yeah. So you've never been to Jerusalem? Never been to Jerusalem. Never been to Jerusalem. Any of uh, any place but Gaza. So let me try to explain to you and to people who listen. There is a system that was set up in 1948 that how Palestinians basically live. Palestinians were divided into four, five categories, and they give us something they call hawiya. I have it actually here in my bag. Uh, hawiya is is a card that has it has a color and has where your name, picture, and where you are from. And that hawiya identifies where you go, where you can go. An ID number on there too. There is an ID number, yes, and it identifies where you can go. So a person from Gaza can't go anywhere but Gaza. A refugee, he's out of the system. He can't even go back. Person in the West Bank can only go to the West Bank and Gaza. A person from Jerusalem has like a blue ID. There's like a specific setup for them. And there's like 1948 Palestinians who has Palestinian citizenship. They can go everywhere. So except Gaza. Uh, so that's how the system. And there is also the Jewish. Any any person who's who's Jewish, that guy can go anywhere except Gaza. Uh, except Gaza. they well, they, they actually go Gaza? can go, but <laughs> usually they don't like to. Go. And so, except for the 1948 Palestinian citizen, the blue one gives you the most relative room to maneuver. And yeah, and then what color is the Gaza one? Yeah, green. And that's uh, I guess that's that's the most restrictive. That's yeah, you can't, you can't go anywhere but Gaza. Can't leave Gaza. So uh, it was only then a couple weeks later. I guess that October 7th, you woke up to the news of Hamas's assault breaking through the security barrier. Yeah. You know, first overrunning uh, military bases, capturing and killing soldiers there, and then, and then continuing on, you know, massacring people at the music festival and you know, rampaging through some kibbutzim. I would imagine you immediately were in contact with people yeah. uh, in Gaza, your, your relatives there. What was what was their reaction to to that news? What did they? They were just as shocked as we were, and I remember my my uncle was saying, "Oh, things will never be the same again. Things will never be the same again." Uh, that was true. Yeah. What was your reaction? Yeah. What was your reaction as it, it was all unfolding? So I was actually uh, I wasn't sleep. I was awake. Hmm. I was about to turn the TV off and go sleep. That's and right. Cause it, it started just I I went about to sleep 11, just before. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I was watching and they see the news. Uh, rockets are being shot out of Gaza and and then all the videos start popping up of you know Hamas fighters and and and, and military bases. It was like, I mean, first, what was shocking was like, oh my God, it's, it's, is it that easy to, <laughs> I mean, like, uh, that simple? Because like, it, they, they were showing us there's just like right. two people in a truck and just driving. Right, like a bulldozer and yeah. or a small bulldozer and a, a literally a pickup truck, a pickup right. truck. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we knew things are not going to be the same again. Like, we all knew that things are not going to be the same. Not to Gaza, I think, for the whole cause. As as Palestinian, I think this whole thing will will change. They will either, like, annihilate Gaza or this whole system will collapse. But it seems like it's, it's heading to annihilate Gaza, unfortunately. It does seem like it's heading in that direction. And so, as Israel is kind of gearing up its response, how was your family kind of preparing for what was coming? Because as you said, with the cards that they have, it's not like they have a whole lot of options to run. Yeah. So last we spoke, I told how many people did I tell you and my relatives were killed? When we spoke last week, you told me 30 on your mother's side had been killed and seven on your father's side had been killed. Yeah, an additional nine were killed a few days ago. Additional nine. Yeah, on my mom's side, total 46. Uh, last yesterday, uh, when you texted me about this interview, uh, my uncle's house was bombed. 
my aunt's house was bombed, my cousin's house was bombed. I mean, yesterday it was a very tough time. We really thought, like, that's it. The whole family will go. I saw news of Han Yunus being bombed mm-hmm. over the last couple of days, and mm-hmm. I, would, I thought of you and your family each time. I mean, I was talking to my uncle uh, when I was trying to get him to, to join this interview. He was telling me, like, we will die in this war. Like, all of us will die, but we didn't know when. Like, it's evident like, to us that, uh, I mean, just uh, the thing is that when they explain it, it's just horrifying. What's happening there is horrifying. I mean, I'll tell you a little story. Yesterday, I was calling him. I was talking to him. He goes like, today, a bomb fell in our, in our street. A, guy, a guy's leg was cut off in front of everyone. And we were trying to just like help him, waiting for an ambulance. And there was just no ambulance. This is, there's no, no 911 no ambulance. No healthcare systems collapsed. And he just kept bleeding, and people just at the end just put him on a on a car, and they just drove him away, trying to take him to the hospital. I don't know what happened after. That was, and then another story. He's he go he goes. There's no food. Uh, my cousin, uh, my cousin called my aunt, called my uncle. She goes, that was before their house was bombed. She goes, uh, Sharif, do you have food? Do you have any bread? And he said, let me try to see who has bread. They don't have, so they tried calling around. And they found there's one little bakery in, in our town that still has, and they called and was like, can please keep a bag of bread for us? So he called my aunt back, and he goes like, oh, ask Ahmed, my cousin, to go and pick it up. Ahmed calls my uncle back, and I was with him on the phone. And he go, tells him, I can't go, I can't leave, it's uh, the... the the street, our street, called Jamal Abdul Nasser. You can go to Google. That street is just blocked because the buildings are collapsed. I can't just cross to the other side. So it was like, wow. So it's just a slow death. Just waiting to die. There's no food. No, they get water now for hours a day. No electricity. It's horrifying. It's what's happening is literally a slow death. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if we've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when I heard that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, what's the catch? But after talking to them, it all made sense. There isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. With Mint Mobile, you get great wireless service at a fraction of the cost of other providers. Say bye-bye to your overpriced wireless plans, jaw-dropping monthly bills and unexpected overages. All plans come with unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash deconstructed. That's mintmobile.com slash deconstructed. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month 
at mintmobile.com slash deconstructed. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. I noticed that Han Yunus was one of the first neighborhoods where they turned water back on for that very short stretch of time. And you mentioned that they had it for, they have it for four hours a day now, but that means that they didn't have it at all. And in the beginning, what did you hear from your family about those first, that first week? That, that, that the first few days we were literally waiting for, like they had a little bit of water and they, they basically were, you know, trying to make it last as long as we, they can. And I was like, they couldn't, just flush their toilets they couldn't just do clean their houses they couldn't do anything and, and it's just we if this continued we by now i think all of them would have been honestly gone well i'm, I'm glad there was a little bit pressured so they just turned the water back on and they get it now for four hours a day so and they try to like fill up you were saying your aunt went like how long without a drop of it she said four days we didn't have a single drop of water and so they, in those four days, they were relying on the little bit that they had saved. They had, yeah. From the very beginning. Yeah. There was like a pressure, I think, from uh, the US government. And I think the whole world just was like, uh, just give them water. And they, right. They just, they sort yeah, they opened the water. Did they say anything about like what life was like without water? Like, like that's the kind of thing that I can't even like begin to imagine. It's just, it's, they everybody they talk about the i mean they weren't thinking of the future like honestly i don't think they were thinking of it like in a few days we were thinking about it my my siblings and i we were thinking about it but they they i mean when you when you have a little bit far and there's like bombs falling down you see people just i, I every t- time i talk i talk to them they tell me like oh he was here like Adil Baraka, for example, he was here. That actually, that was story that was told to me this morning. He was here yesterday, but today we actually had went to his funeral. He was killed. So when they see it, that things like this, I don't think they think of the future. What's going to happen to us in a week if we didn't have water? They weren't concerned about that. That was they wanted this whole thing nightmare to end, but it got progressively worse. Right, I, that makes sense from our perspective. We're like. Right, you need you need water to live, and from their perspective, we're like, well, yes, but we also won't live if a bomb lands on our roof. Yeah, and I mean, before before my aunt's house was bombed, uh, houses adjacent to the area were bombed, and like windows were break one by one, and like uh, damages to the walls and things like this would happen, and it's just like. It was when you live in a condition like this. I don't imagine your mindset is in, uh, you're thinking straight at all. Right. Like uh, so, yeah, it's just horrifying. They just prayed and have. Have you seen the flyers that the IDF has been dropping in the Han Yunus neighborhood? Because a, a source of mine passed me one. Have you Have you seen these yet? I'll, I'll read it to you. They, yeah, they're they're leaflets. So it's a leaf that that's everywhere in this village of Han Yunus. It's and it's from the IDF, and it says in Arabic, and I'm told with a bunch of kind of typos and grammatical problems, but I don't speak Arabic, so I can't testify to that. But it says, mm-hmm. if you want a better future for yourself and your children, do the right thing and send us concrete and useful information about the hostages in your area. The Israel Defense Forces promises to do its best to keep you and your houses safe and to give you a financial reward. We promise you complete anonymity. And then underneath it, it has uh, you know, WhatsApp and other phone numbers that people can then use to give information about uh, hostages. It feels like the implicit stick there, you know, the carrot being, we'll, we'll pay you, the stick being, What's been going on will just continue to happen unless these hostages are exchanged or although do you think that would stop if they were? Is there some suspicion that a lot of hostages are in this area? Like or do you think this is happening all over Casa? I think this is like there is no place now in Gaza there is no place that is not being bombed. Just, mm-hmm. just my gra- they took my grandmother to 
friend of theirs in Rafah, which is literally on the Gaza border, and there were houses next door that were bombed. So there is no place that's not getting bombed. And the collect the idea of collective punishment, that is something we've experienced all of our lives. That that's something that Israelis do in a very that's routine. And the the experience like you get as a Palestinian from the Israelis, you're not you, you you're looked down upon. You're not looked at as equal. You're not looked at as even human. Um, that is like an, something every Palestinian have experienced. And you were asking me about why Hamas was elected and Hamas was elected. You know what? I guarantee you, take Moody of India, put him in Palestine and uh, to, uh, have him say, oh, I'll fight the occupation for you. He will win the elections. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, if you bring in someone like Abbas, who the PLO, they've been in power for 35 years saying, oh, we'll negotiate, we'll negotiate. And life is just getting worse and worse and worse and worse. Uh, we used to get food, uh, power. We, I used to be able to go. Now I can't even go. Honestly, being Hamas being in power, being elected, not surprising at all. Not surprising at all. And I have the luxury of you know saying, oh, this is moral. This is not moral. This is good. This is not good. This is civilian. This is not civilian. Because I'm sitting here under the AC. But when there is... When you live in Gaza, there is no future. No one works. There is literally, I don't know what's the employment rate, unemployment rate, but I think it's probably 150%. Uh, Nobody works. Like They live, we send them money. There is no economy. They're not allowed to have an economy. Power is limited. Movement is limited. Future is, is not existent. What's happened, honestly, only an idiot would it, wouldn't think that it would happen. I mean, if you put your ha- your foot on someone's neck for 16, 17, 75 years, uh, he's going to please take your leg. That's what happened. That's how I honestly, the analogy comes in my head. Uh, negotiations, please, 35 years, please take it off my neck. And then I'll just find a stone and hit you with it. And that is literally what's happening. And do I think it's whatever, if there is peace, is is, is the product of justice. If there is no justice, you're not gonna have peace. If I'm t- if I'm stealing your uh, your food, you're not gonna be just your money. You're not gonna be just looking at me. You're gonna try to get it back. I mean, there needs to be some sort of uh, a just solution to this issue. I, I've thought about that phenomenon as Israel has talked about eradicating Hamas, like they're gonna go in and they're gonna destroy Hamas. And let's say that as an organization, you could uproot the entire thing, just hypothetically, like for the sake of argument, you get rid of the entire thing of Hamas. If it's the case, like you're saying, that Modi could come in there and is, and if he takes the same line that Hamas took before, that would be the party that gains support. It feels like whatever returns in Hamas's place would then be effectively the same, Yeah, t- taking the same line. It's, it, just, it, it's, it just makes sense, Ryan. I mean, think about it. If you have an oppressed group of people, they have, they're treated like subhuman, no food, no water, occupation, they can't even leave. I mean, my cousins, they can't, my grandmother, now if she sees me, she wouldn't recognize me. She has it like, if she only sees me in FaceTime, I haven't seen her in, since 2005. It, what do you expect of these people? Like, what do you expect them to say? Like, sub, just, you know, I'm your victim, but I submit to your, uh, your will. It's, it's, I'm okay with being uh, oppressed. It's not gonna happen. It's I just it just makes it's a natural behavior, human behavior, and it's it's been almost when the Oslo Accords were in 1993. So almost 30 years of negotiations and nothing happened. Initially, everybody believed there will be a two-state solution and we will have a Palestinian state and. You know, we'll just forsake, uh, we'll forgive and let go of everything, and we'll just be happy and raise good. And just like 30 years later, no, not even nothing. Less land, more oppression, and I just, I it's expected. What happened is, it's just expected, and it's not going to stop. Honestly, I just normal that never stops until there is a justice. And w- when you think about the phenomenon of oppressed people are going uh, 
to resist. Hmm. And you think about what Israel is doing in Gaza now. That's one reason I think that your earlier point that you were making about annihilation might be the most logical explanation. It, it, it almost feels like Israel feels like this is a moment they're going to end this problem. But, I, but what does that look like? We're talking 2 million people. 2.3 million. 2.3 million people. Yeah, that's like what's Like, how, what does it look like if Israel tries that? I hope the world is not okay with that. This 2.3 million people get killed in front of us and we're just watching this. Wow. What was this going to say? What, what does this say about us as just human species? Wow. I mean, I hope that never happens. I mean. I, mean, I just get honestly, I'm just getting chills just thinking about that concept. And like to think about it is, is uh, no, I hope it never happens. And I don't necessarily, I don't, I don't necessarily mean the killing of 2.3 million people, but the pushing of mil, a million plus into, say, the Sinai. <laughs> I mean, they pushed the people in from uh, from Yaffa, from uh, to Gaza, and then they're gonna push them to Sinai. That that problem. <laughs> if you think pushing them to Gaza will end this, to Sinai will end this. I mean, <laughs> I just, I think it's just. Uh, I, yeah, I don't think it's it's gonna end it. Yeah, if if something, this is gonna even create more problems to Egypt and gonna get Egypt more involved. Yeah, just people don't give up their rights. Like that's that's just normal. So just the other day, President Biden was asked about civilian casualties in Gaza. I'm sure you saw uh, his answer to that. What they say to me is I have no notion that the Palestinians are telling the truth about how many people are killed. I'm sure innocents have been killed. And it's the price of waging a war. I think we should be incredibly careful. I think not we, the Israelis should be incredibly careful. What was your reaction when you heard Biden say, I can't really trust these numbers. I was actually, I, I agree with them, but I agree with them on the other side. Because I was talking to my uncle and he goes like, people just disappear. Like they don't, like they disappear. Like uh, Abu Baraka's house, like uh, in our town, their building just was hidden and they're down under the rubble. Nobody knows who's under, who's gone. So I do think it's honestly, I, I confidently can say it's more than what the media is saying. The numbers are more. I'm confident. I mean, if I'm an individual in Gaza and I, the, not relatives, not the people I know. Relatives, 46 people were killed. People I know, I families like uh, Abu Libdi, the whole family was gone. Uh, Ashar, the whole family was gone. And there's usually the families in Gaza is like in the house, there'll be like 30 people living in the house. It's a very condensed place, very. There's not a lot of space in Gaza. So I do think it's more than what they say, honestly. You probably also saw uh, these comments uh, from John Kirby the other day where he was asked about civilian casualties, and he said, This is war. It is combat. It is bloody. It is ugly. And it's going to be messy. And innocent civilians are going to be hurt going forward. I wish I could tell you something different. I wish that that wasn't going to happen. It's something we're used to, honestly, unfortunately, from uh, Europeans and um, Western governments. It's just usually like, it's see how the world is just like up and armed. The whole media is just covering and there is like uh, 1,500, uh, 1,400 Israelis were killed. I mean, we, I mean, Arabs and Muslims. And that's, by the way, that's the perception of it. That's a very strategic mistake, I think, Joe Biden and the, uh, the U.S. government is doing. They're, everybody's looking. The whole world, just my social media is just like, why are we, are we subhuman? Are we not like you? Everybody, this resentment, feeling of resentment of average individual, uh, towards the U.S. government, why aren't we the same? Why aren't you worried about it the same? Why are you looking at us differently? Uh, why are you, there's like almost 7,500 people were killed in Gaza and, and you're still talking about uh, 200 uh, uh, hostages and you're killing. I mean, solve it diplomatically instead of dropping bombs. Uh, and that is the feeling. I mean, when we talk, when we talk about the uh, Iraq war, the same thing in Afghanistan, God knows how many. And mm -hmm. 
it's the feeling that everybody is getting around the world that, or at least around the Arabic world, that, oh, the U.S. government really doesn't, all of this quote-unquote bullshit about human rights is just bullshit. It's just uh, to push their agenda and get to what they want. But there is really nothing called human rights. It's all bullshit. And do you think any of the strikes related to your family were targeted why are they hitting these buildings? Like, what is, is it, does it feel indiscriminate? Like, what is going on there? I mean, uh, I do think it's indiscriminate. <laughs> Did you look at the picture? There is no oh, yes. way all of does, these does people does not look discriminate. <laughs> yes. <laughs> there is, yeah, that's very, just, they're just dropping bombs. And I mean, my, my, my family, they, they have nothing to do with politics. These people do they literally just in their house and they they don't they don't have they're not engaged in anything not hamas not fatah they're not with anyone like and they were just phew, gone yeah yeah it's uh, a lot of people were killed from even fatah uh, it's uh, everybody's just getting bombed yeah i'm sure you saw this that the family of uh, al jazeera gaza bureau chief yeah. while dardu was killed yeah uh, the family was thought they thought they were in a safe location down in southern Gaza, as you said. There doesn't seem to be anywhere safe. And an Israeli journalist from Channel Thirteen, his name is Zvi uh, Rez Kelly, uh, said on the air that he thought the IDF, or that not that he thought, he said the IDF targeted the family. He said you know, his quote was, "Generally, we know the target. For example, today there was a target, the family of an Al Jazeera reporter. In general, we know. On the other hand, they're also just." so indiscriminately bombing it's hard to say what what is what is the sense of of gazans about whether or not idf is pulling off these targeted killings so uh, let me tell you something about how how we how they we we understand what they do the the, the israelis the, the collective punishment it's something they they do we understand that we know it and we've lived it uh but they they do play on on this psychological building in this psychological fear fear of people. Uh, I was reading uh, on on online. There's something called the Iron Wall. Uh, it's a, it's an article that was written by Zaif Jabotansky, uh, one of the founders of Zionism, and he was basically saying we need to just beat them and just make them feel that we are just too powerful for them. We are merciless. We'll kill all of them if we have to. So they never raise basically their finger in our face. They never resist us. And he says, like, you can't take someone land and not expect them to resist. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we need to just build so much fear inside of them so they never resist us. And that is why I think what's happening. So they call it deterrent. They want to just make you very afraid of them and i do think honestly people just i mean i just told you like i was talking to my uncle and he goes like we all will die and i do think that's the as a palestinian there is no future and you know they're gonna kill you either way so just screw it go for it just do what you have to do how does a family mourn so many people like how do you begin the process of mourning the new person when you haven't finished mourning the last person. That's honestly a very tough question. Now we're thinking of protecting what's who's left, honestly, mm -hmm. and just uh, uh, something. I open Instagram and you see the stories. Like whenever someone gets killed, you know, my, I have a lot of friends and family in Gaza, and they just post, "Oh, he passed away. He was killed today. He was killed today." And they're just like every open social media. And a few days ago, my uncle, my cousin had something and they was afraid to open it. I was like, is it going to be a bad news? And when they don't, when we text them on WhatsApp and something and they don't read it for a few hours, they don't have power until like whenever they get a chance to charge using solar power, so solar panel. Uh, so they don't read the message if like half an hour passes by, they don't read it. We just like such figuring out, trying to figure out how we can reach out to uh, people in Gaza to know if they're still alive. And 
it's just horrible times, honestly, and it's very emotional on on, our, on us, all of us. Uh, anywhere, like when you say you're you're focusing on trying to keep the remaining people alive, alive. Is, is there anything they can do? Like, what, are are they are there any, or is it just hope? Yes, just pray. Yeah. Just hope and pray. And they, what 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 are they gonna do? I mean, where are they gonna go? Like they. They took my grandmother to Rafah, uh, to a friend of my uncle, his to the house of a friend of my uncle, and and they're still. She was. We were talking to her yesterday. She said like, "Oh, they bombed Rafah, and and there's like a few buildings were shot down or bombed." And we in Khan Yunis. We're actually like right in the center of Gaza. So really, no place. No, there's no safe place. I, uh, you know what? Like the nine people I was telling you about, how I knew they were killed on TV. We're watching TV, and there's like Al Zarab. Like immediately text my, uh, my cousin. He goes like, "What happened?" And he goes, "Yes," and he gave me the names. Did you notice that the uh, the Gaza Ministry of Health released the names of yeah more than seven thousand? Yeah, and their names was not actually on the list. Yeah, two hundred twelve pages. I went to scroll through it, and yeah, yeah, that was in response for for listeners who haven't followed it. That was in response to President Biden saying they don't believe the lists, and that's one reason I was asking about ID numbers because they they included the ID numbers as well, so that anybody Israelis, if they want to check, they can. Yeah, I I saw that, I saw that, I saw the documents. Two hundred twelve pages of names and ID numbers and age, I think even. Well, Marm, is there anything else you'd you'd want to say um, that the audience ought to ought to know? I just uh, learn more about the history of this. Learn more about, compare this. Read more about what's happening in South Africa and how similar it is to what's happening, and just understand how the system works. It's not only when there's a blow up. This is like a continuous. It's just a whole system that was built on oppressing one group. It's just dominated by another ethnic group so just educate yourself learn more about it and just keep keep us in your prayers well you'll be in ours Maram thank you so much for joining us thank you so much Ryan that was Maram Aldada and that's our show Deconstructed is a production of The Intercept our producer is Jose Olivares our supervising producer is Laura Flynn the show is mixed by William Stanton legal review by David Braylow Leonardo Fireman transcribed this episode Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Roger Hodge is The Intercept's editor-in-chief. And I'm Ryan Grimm, D.C. Bureau Chief of The Intercept. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com slash give. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week. And please go and leave us a rating or review. It helps people find the show. If you want to give us additional feedback, email us at podcasts at theintercept.com or at ryan.grimm at theintercept.com. Put deconstructed in the subject line, otherwise we might miss your message. Thanks so much, and we'll see you soon. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.